Hey, good morning, good morning. Welcome to South Bay Community Church. My name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we've been in the middle of this series called Live Like This. It's teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. It's considered the greatest sermon of all time. And one of the reasons why it is the greatest sermon of all time is because it was given by the greatest of all time. Jesus Christ. And what we've been learning and what we've been unpacking is how Jesus has come to help us understand what God's law, God's rules, but God's standards he has for those that would follow him. He's called us to a radical and different kind of living. Not one that is looking like the rest of the world or culture or anything like that, but instead he's called us to really live like Jesus. And so today we're going to unpack a little bit more of what that looks like. And it's going to be teachings that probably many of you guys have heard before. We use these phrases in our culture all the time. Things like turning the other cheek or going the extra mile or giving the shirt off our back. But I want to show you what Christ meant when he taught these things. On top of addressing the heart of the matter in regards to loving our enemies. But before that, I want to pray. And even before I open up our time in a word of prayer, I also wanted to pray for a specific situation and family. I don't know if you guys were here last week or aware of what has been going on in the news, but there was a young lady uh, who was here from, from Los Angeles who was a college student in Utah. Uh, her name was Mackenzie, and she was here visiting her family a few weeks back. She went back to school afterwards, uh, flew back home, and she went missing. And unfortunately, we've come to find out that someone has taken her life. And this was near and dear to one of the members here at our church, Peggy Malpy. Uh, she was a former teacher, teacher of this young lady. And I know that her heart's breaking. And I can only imagine how much her parents and her family and her friends must be hurting as well. And so I thought, you know, as we open up in this time of prayer, why don't we just lift up that family as well, okay? So let's pray together. God, we come before you and God, our hearts are wrecked for this family. God, we can't imagine the pain and the hurt they're experiencing. God, but we know that you understand what it is like to see a child die as you allow your son to die on the cross for us. And so God, we beg and we plead on behalf of Mackenzie's family and friends for Peggy that God, you would provide them comfort, that God, you would give them peace that you tell us can be beyond all understanding, and that, God, you would appear to them in a real way, in a way that is tangible, in a way where they sense your great love and comfort for them. And, God, as we move forward in this message today, God, I pray that you would help us. God, as we look at these ideas of how we are to react to all sorts of different people, but especially to those whom are difficult to love, to those who are our enemies and those that may seek out to harm us or wrong us. God, show us how we are to respond. We love you. We thank you. And God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, we've been kind of going on track with the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And if you look, you might see that we're kind of jumping ahead. Because actually the next passages that we were supposed to be talking about today, if we were going in order, were about marriage, and we're about divorce, and we're about 
adultery as well as oaths. And, you know, we're skipping ahead, not because we want to skip over that, but instead, Pastor Gary really, really wanted to teach on that. And so he wanted to make sure he took his time and wanted to come before you guys next week, presenting to you guys God's heart in these things. And so we want to encourage you guys, especially those that are married. Maybe some of you guys know someone that is married. This would be a perfect, a perfect message for them to come and hear. Or maybe some of you guys are struggling in your marriage or are considering divorce or know somebody or are some, is someone that is going through the process of divorce or recently have gone through it yourself. We hope that you would come back and hear God's heart about these matters and find hope in what he has to say. But today what we're going to do is we're going to again take a look at some things that are probably familiar to us, but I pray that it wouldn't be so familiar that you would, you would just let it in one ear and out the other, but that instead you would really allow it to convict you, to challenge you, and truly change you. You know, as I was preparing for this message, uh, I came along a study done by this author where he went out and he surveyed a bunch of college students on a college campus. And the survey was about the things that they get annoyed about. Pet peeves. Do you guys have any pet peeves? Oh, wow. Some of you guys really do have some pet peeves. Well, I wanted to share with you the list that he had found and com compiled together as he surveyed these college students. Let me tell you, the first one was when people chew loudly or with their mouths open. I know that my wife is, gets really bothered by this, and so when she bothers me, I tend to chew a little bit louder. Um, another one that they shared was excessive PDA, public displays of affection. Many people are just thinking, hey, go get a room. Uh, other, people, other people said, or the top things were when, oh, this one was funny, leaving the turn signal on in a turn-only lane. And the author, the author was really triggered by this. I don't know why, but he went on to write a whole paragraph about how this is the dumbest thing ever. You're already in a lane designated to turn left. Why do you have to leave your left turn blinker on? And I was like, really? This is so silly. But maybe some of you guys feel the same way as I see some heads nodding. Uh, this one, maybe you're guilty of it. And maybe you've been bothering some people sitting around you, especially during worship, because they said one of the top pet peeves was clapping offbeat. Um, <laughs> another one, and I've seen a lot of people bothered by this, was improper grammar. Like they don't like it when people don't talk good, right? And so they just get really, really triggered by that. Another, other ones were being told how, they, how, how to feel and what to think. Uh, they don't like it when someone acts like something they're not. People who are just blatantly disrespectful. Uh, people who are excessively pessimist and this one this one is one that I can truly identify with it was people choosing to cruise in the left lane that is supposed to be the fast lane mm, I heard some mm, some amens yeah I agree okay and it was funny though because these these things to me some of them don't bother me at all and, and so I went to my wife Darren and I was like can you believe these people get so upset about such trivial things and I don't know about you guys, but I've learned a big lesson in my marriage so far. Man, wives have the ability to put you in your place and humble you. That's exactly what my wife did. Because when I brought this up, she's like, yeah, I do know somebody that gets annoyed very easily and reacts very poorly. You. And I was like, me? What are you talking about? Nothing ever bothers me. Nothing gets under my skin. I'm a pastor. Right? And she was like, you know what? well, what happens to Pastor James when you show up on the road? And I was like, oh, you are absolutely correct. 
See, maybe some of you guys have been here where I've shared some of my struggles on the road before, but I have an issue, and it's called road rage. Um, it's probably, you know, has to do with a little bit of the Korean blood that runs through these veins. But, yeah, I, I just react poorly sometimes. I, I remember even earlier this week, as I was driving into work, I was driving down Hawthorne and making my way law-abiding citizen, going the speed limit, doing right by everything, supposedly, well, at least I like to think I was, and I was driving, and all of a sudden, as I was going, there was an intersection coming up, and someone started creeping up to the intersection the other way, wanting to make a right into the oncoming traffic, into the traffic that I was going into. I look, and this guy starts to creep closer and closer to the curb, and I'm thinking, no, don't go. I'm right here. Please, like, nobody's behind me. Just wait a second or two. But what do they decide to do? No, let's go right in front of you. And I was like, oh, my goodness, right? And so I had to let them know they were in the wrong. So I honk, maybe a little longer than I should, and maybe I drove a little bit closer than I was supposed to. I just wanted to let them know what I thought and that Jesus loves them, but <laughs> maybe not act exactly that. But there have been often times that this has happened, and I get so frustrated, and I get so mad, and when Darren's in the car with me when this stuff occurs, I, remember, I always go, what is wrong with them? They're so crazy, ah! right? And she just looks at me, and she goes, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? They're the people that are in the wrong. That was so dumb. That was so selfish. I'm not the offender in this case. Why are you getting mad at me? And then that causes a whole other fight between the two of us. But that's another sermon for another time. But as I was studying for this sermon, I realized she was right. There is something wrong with me. It was my response and my reactions. See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think every single one of us in here have a sense of justice. And when we're wronged or we see wrong, it bothers us. And I believe that's a good trait to have. I believe it is representative of the Spirit of God, the image of Him that we have been made by. But, but the thing is, I think sin has perverted that and twisted it. And what has become this sense of righteousness and justice that we seek oftentimes when wrong happens around us or especially to us has turned more into not just making things right or being right, but about getting revenge and retaliation. So you can see it just in the example of maybe an apology. Maybe somebody hurt you or wronged you, and so they sincerely come to you and they apologize for their mistake or their wrongdoing. How many of us have sometimes chosen not to forgive or accept their apology because we don't feel like it? Or because we feel like they're not being sincere enough? Or we think, you know what? No, that is not good enough. I want you to not just be sorry. I want you to feel my hurt and my pain as well. See, I think it is sin that makes us want to choose to not just accept an extended branch of offering and of forgiveness, but wanting to seek revenge and retaliation. And this is why I believe that Jesus wanted to address this subject here in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you guys have your Bibles, would you guys meet me here at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38? That's where we're going to begin. Um, if you guys don't have your Bibles, you guys could open up your program. Inside is an insert with all these verses. And also, if you want, we will have the verses up here to follow along as well, if you're more of a vigil person. But, but let's take a look at how Jesus 
desires that we respond when we're treated wrongly or poorly or unjustly. He tells us in Matthew 5.38, he begins by saying this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And see, what I want you guys to understand and what I want to clarify for you guys is this. Jesus is, again, addressing a teaching that for some reason has been taken out of context. See, back in the days, scribes and Pharisees and other religious leaders taught things from the Bible, but somehow, someway, maybe, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, things have gotten twisted and changed to not really mean what God had intended by these verses. Or they were taken out of context and used the wrong way. And this is a perfect example of it. See, the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is a principle of justice. It's even referred to in this Latin word called lex talionis. Lex talionis. And what it basically means is the idea is punishment should fit the crime. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It was present since early on in civilizations. It was present even in the Bible as we see it here and we'll, we'll read on later on. And it was even present during Jesus' time under Roman law. But see, God had a specific design for this command. And so let's take a look in the Old Testament in Exodus as Moses describes this command of lex talionis. And I want to show you and share with you what the context was actually about. See, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25, it says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. See, what Jesus was giving was specific rules for laws to dole out justice. Not retaliation, not revenge, but how to deal with matters in a civil way. See, what God was giving to Moses and to share to his people wasn't necessarily how to deal with personal interactions and personal, personal moments where people offend you, but offenses that are usually taken into the matter of court. See, what God was giving these commands to were the judges of Israel in order to help people figure out not how to get revenge with one another, but how to serve justice. And see, what happened, though, was that people perverted this idea and they took it not to the courts and just applied it there, but they began applying it to their life. See, what I want you guys to understand is Jesus came and he shared this law, not to say that it was a bad law or it was a law that we needed to get rid of, but he said this is actually a good law for the justice system, that the, crime, that the punishment should fit the crime. But somehow, some way, you guys have taken that moral compass. Your moral compass has changed from treating each other with love and grace, and now you're tra treating each other by this law that was intended for a different situation and different context. And so his intent of clarifying this idea of lex talionis was not to make our legal rights a basis for how we interact and react and respond to others in our relationships when it, when it concerned disputes or problems. But see, Jesus had a different way that he wanted us to respond. And so let's take a look at the verses that follow. And let's see the radical way Jesus calls us to live. Not eye for eye or tooth for tooth, but instead in this way. He says, but I say to you, my disciples, the people that are following me, God's children, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The first thing that I want you guys to note here is Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. And what Jesus is implying is not just this general idea of evil. He's not talking about Satan as well. He's talking about the person or the man who wrongs you. So consider that as we look at the context of the rest of the metaphors Jesus uses to teach us on how to respond. So the one that is evil, the one that has harmed you, he says this, if they strike you on the cheek, right, to turn the other cheek, but there's something very specific about what Jesus says here as well. Do you notice that he very specifically says the right cheek? This is right, yeah, right cheek. And if you look at it like this, most people were right-handed, and so it's well assumed that most people would strike you with the right hand. And yet, if a person is standing across from you, if I slap somebody, what cheek am I probably going to hit? The left, right? And so how is it that I'm going to hit the right cheek? Like this? Probably not, right? Probably like this a backhanded slap. And see, at the time, this was considered one of the most disrespectful things you could do. This was a sign of sheer embarrassment and of humiliation. This was insulting to the highest degree. So what I believe Jesus is describing here isn't necessarily just about a physical assault, but an assault on one's dignity. And one thing that I really want to clear up, because I know that this has been misused and misunderstood for a lot of things, but what I want you guys to understand is that I don't believe Jesus is teaching us this so that we could be doormats and punching bags for people, that we could invite abuse and just take it on more and more and more. But what I believe Jesus is trying to, to show us is that in our response to, to, to the evil one who tries to harm us, that we would not retaliate with a closed fist, or eye for an eye, or slap for a slap, but that instead we return his slap with the other cheek, inviting a new start. See, in doing this, we give up our right to get back and to save face for an invitation for a new beginning. See, I believe Jesus desired that. And you can see it as we continue on more and more. The second example that he used is in the context of being sued in a legal system. And he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, don't just give him your tunic, but offer him your coat. And the tunic, I want you to understand, in our day and age, it would relate to a person's shirt. And the coat, as what we know, as a jacket or a coat or something like that. And he's saying that, you know, legally, people could sue you at that time for your shirt. Right? If you didn't have the financial means to repay a debt or to honor somebody suing you, then you can actually use your shirt as a ways of repayment. You couldn't use your cloak. Why? Because a cloak was that important to the people in that day and age. So much so that no one ever had a legal right to sue someone for their coat. Because for people, their coat was more than just a garment to wear, but it was something that they would use to find warmth when they slept or use as a pillow when they go to sleep. But yet Jesus is saying here, hey, someone sues you, don't just offer the shirt off your back, give them your cloak as well. 
And I think what Jesus is trying to imply is this. Maybe in this situation, maybe someone is unfairly accusing you of something and they're requiring this demand of payment, of repayment from you. And, and, and while you may not be totally at fault, maybe there is a part of you because he's saying here that you have been legally found guilty of something, so you have to repay them. Maybe in some sort of dispute, in some sort of argument, maybe somebody's asking for repayment. And what Jesus is saying, yeah, you could just give your, what you're legally required to or just enough to suffice, but he's saying, no, go above and beyond. Don't just do the bare minimum. It's kind of like when two kids fight and one kid hits the other one and says, you know what, tell your sister that you're sorry. And they're like, I'm sorry, right? They just do the bare minimum, right? They just say enough to get out of the punishment. Jesus says, that is not the attitude that I want you to have with your offender. No, I want you to go above and beyond. Why? Because I believe Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to take every action to try to bring reconciliation. Because if you wrong them, even if you didn't mean to, even if it was by accident, offer up repayment of what is required to you, but also offer up more for sake, for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of reconciliation. An- another example that Jesus uses, crazy metaphor, is to walk a mile. I don't know about you, but guys, a mile is a long way to go right? Some of us, man, we can't even think about walking, let alone running a mile or anything like that. But Jesus says not just to walk a mile when someone forces you to, but to walk too. And I know that maybe out of context, we don't understand what that means. So let me share with you guys what this looked like in the history and the time of Jesus. See, back then, Roman officials who were ruling over the Israelites at the time, they had a law instituted that they could literally go up to any citizen and tell them, hey, I want you to help me carry my belongings. I want you to travel with me. And legally, you had to stop whatever you were doing. You had to stop wherever you were going and help this Roman official or this Roman soldier and walk with them and carry their things for them for up to a mile. After a mile, you were no longer legally responsible to stay with them. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, hey, somebody forces you or requires you to walk a mile with them and even though you think it's unfair even though you think it's not right he says don't just walk a mile with them go an extra mile to serve them and and i think one of the reasons that jesus is sharing this and showing this is because especially in the case of roman officials what he wants his believers to do and to show is that while you may have legal rights for me to walk one mile with you carrying these things for you you know what you are not my king and you are not my ruler i live by another standard and i live by another king and another ruler and he is god and so i will live according to what he has called me to do so i'm not just going to walk one mile because my god said walk two so I'm going to walk too, because you're not my king. My father in heaven is my king. And, and so in doing this, you, you serve this person. And I think when we serve another person, when they've wronged us or hurt us or done, wrong, done bad to us, I, I think there is this effect of disarming them. And I, I think it has this great opportunity when we take the high road to de-escalate a situation. And then Jesus goes on and he tells us one other way that we are to love and to serve other people. And it was to give to those who beg and to lend to those who want to borrow. And this probably has to deal with material things in our property. And Jesus is calling us to be generous people 
who have our hands open, right, to, to be people that give. But I, I want to remind us that God has also called us to be stewards of the things that he has given us. And so we, as good stewards, we're not to be reckless or res- irresponsible, but also as stewards, we need to remember that the things that we have are not ours to keep. And as stewards, we need to do as the owner pleases. And what the owner pleases is that when somebody is in need and they, have, they, have a require, they, they need help, that our response should be love and of compassion, of generosity. And that, that doesn't mean that we give handouts or we enable people, but we love people. And our reaction should show that. When you see somebody come begging or asking for lending, somebody that you don't like, someone that gets on your nerves, somebody that has done you wrong, what is your first reaction? No, heck no. Is your first reaction to maybe someone that is homeless and has done something wrong against you? Is this judgment of like criticism? Or hey, you should just get a job? Is it a hard-hearted reaction? Or is it the reaction that God has called us to have? One of generosity. See, I think a beautiful picture of all four of these examples is found in this young man named Josh. This is Josh Yant, and he's a motivational speaker now, but in high school, he experienced bullying to a great degree, so much so that he had to switch schools because he just couldn't stand it anymore because of the teasing that he endured, because of the names that he was called, because of the way that the other kids at school were treating him. And one of the reasons that the kids bullied him was because his dad had died at a young age and he missed his dad so much that he used to put a picture of his dad in his locker and just stare at it at times. And so kids thought that was funny. Kids used that as ammunition to make fun of him and to give him a hard time. You know, Josh didn't exactly know what to do. He didn't know how to respond. Maybe, maybe he could have gone back at them, teased them, made fun of them, done things to harm them and hurt them. But you know what? Josh did something else. He did much like what these four examples showed. See, Josh, he chose to do something radical. He did something simple and yet profound. What Josh did was this. He would show up to school earlier than most of the kids, and there was one main entrance that most of the kids would use to go in and out of school. And what he did was he decided to open the door and hold it open for each and every kid and welcome them as they came and as they left from school. He just chose to serve them, not strike back at them, not make fun of them, not retaliate against them, not hold anger, but his response was to serve them. And in doing so, it flipped, the, it flipped his school upside down. While initially people laughed at him and mocked him for doing this, people started to realize, what what are we doing? Here's a young man who has every right to be angry and upset with us because of the way we treat him, and yet he chooses instead to serve us. And so he went from being bullied to eventually being the prom king at his school. And he became a light and inspiration to the rest of the school on how they should love and treat one another. See, I believe this is the point of why God has called us to react differently than the letter of the law of eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So how do we respond when somebody hurts us or wrongs us? That's the question that I pose to you guys. And according to the scripture, this is the response. We write this down. We respond with generous grace. 
we respond with the generous grace. And I want to just remind us of what grace means and what it looks like because we throw it around so easily here at church. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Grace is an unmerited gift. Basically what that means, it's a gift that we don't deserve. And so some of you guys are sitting in here, you're hearing Jesus' words, and you're like, James, this person slapped me. This person, this person took away my identity or my dignity. They treated me so poorly and so wrongly. They don't deserve to be treated well. Why should I treat them that way? And will I remind you? Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved gift. What Jesus is calling us to do is to be generous, generous in our grace toward other people. Look at what Jesus even says in our response to each of these individuals that harm or hurt us. He says what? When they strike your cheek, offer the other cheek. When they sue you for your tunic, offer them another cloak for restitution and resolution. He says when they force you to walk a mile, offer them another mile. When they beg, give and give generously. See, it's not about revenge or a rightful response of retaliation and retribution. Instead, Jesus is saying, live by the spirit of grace, of generous grace, rather than the legal right of the law. See, here's the thing, guys. I want, you guys to ho- I want you guys to understand this. You know, we can't control what other people do and how they'll treat us. I don't think Jesus is saying to condone their evil or their, or, or their harmful acts. No, but what I believe Jesus is trying to say is, you control what you can control. You control yourself. You control your reactions. You can't control them. You can't control what they'll say, how they what they do. But you can control you. And how do I want you to control you? I want you to look and act like me. See, this is the way that Jesus has called us to live and call us to respond in the face of people who do these types of things to us. And this is hard. This is difficult. And I want to show you guys some more things that Jesus reveals to us in these scriptures of how we can respond in this way. It's going to require a lot of things, but two things that I really want to focus on is this. Will you write this down? It will require trusting God and surrendering our rights. See, in order to respond in this way of love, it's going to require that we trust God and surrender our rights. We got to trust God when someone strikes us on the cheek, not to take vengeance in our own hands, but to leave it in his. Because did you guys know that revenge is supposed to be the Lord's? Take a look at Romans 12, 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, it's not about being passive or pacifist, but it's leaving retaliation and retribution in the hands of God. He says it's his, not ours. And so when we try to take it into our own hands, that says, God, we don't trust you to do the right thing. Or it says, God, I need to do this for myself. It focuses on ourselves rather than saying, God, I trust you to do what is right. Will you trust that God is your avenger? Will you trust that God can be your defender? Will you trust that God will rightfully act because he is a just God on your behalf? Or will you try to take things into your own hands? See, trusting God also requires that second idea of surrender. And see, what Jesus shows us is that we need to surrender our rights. Our rights for dignity, our rights even legally, even sometimes our freedom, and even our property. And you think, this is hard, and I get it. I see it too. I struggled with this message as I was actually trying to unpack it. 
But then I remembered Jesus. And I realized that that's exactly what his life was all about. See, Jesus turned the other cheek. When he was accused, and when he was taken prisoner, right? One of, one of his disciples reacted by taking out a sword and slicing off a Roman soldier's ear, right? But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm not about that. And he took the ear and he put it back on the soldier and made it right. So Jesus at any moment, at any time could have said, man, these guys are being ridiculous. They are mocking me. They are spitting on me. They are beating me. And he could have easily said, enough, God, smite them, smite, done, right? But he knew that God had a plan, and he trusted in God's plan. And in order for God's plan to succeed, he needed to surrender his right and his dignity. He also su surrendered his legal right, because Pontius Pilate, the one that judged him, the one that had the opportunity to send him to the cross or not, Right? He said to the crowd that was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. He said to them, this man, I have found no wrong in him. There was no legal basis for him to, to put Jesus on that cross. But still, Jesus went to that cross. He surrendered his legal right. And he gave, he gave his life in order to serve us. See, do you see Jesus? This was his response to those that were his enemies. He turned the other cheek. He gave up his rights. He gave up his freedom. And he gave so generously his own life. And why? Why did he do this? All for reconciliation. See, man messed up. So man and God were separated. So Jesus, Jesus came to make a way so that man and God can be together again. It was all about reconciliation. And so when you're challenged, and when somebody offends you, hurts you, wrongs you, will you choose to respond with reconciliation as your top priority? I believe that's what Jesus would want us to do. I believe that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Write this down as your next point. Our response should show that we desire reconciliation over retaliation. See, because in doing so, we put the other people ahead of us. It's not just about us and getting what we believe to be right. Instead, we give that up to open up the chance for peace, not rightful retribution or retaliation for the opportunity of reconciliation. And Jesus is saying this, not just for the reconciliation of us and the offender who harmed us and wronged us, but the opportunity for reconciliation between that offender and God. We, as God's vehicle of grace, can show this man who our dad is. So I challenge you guys, when you feel mistreated, when you feel wronged, when you feel hurt, harmed, and hated, will you trustfully surrender? Just trustfully surrender your right for retribution for the sake of grace and reconciliation. I know it's hard. I know some of you guys are sitting here and you're thinking about this person or people who have treated you so poorly. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a friend or a former friend. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse and you're thinking, I can't. You don't understand. They're so evil. They're so mean. They're unruly. They're so overwhelming. 
And I get you, I, I don't understand, but I know God does. And I believe what God wants to do is show us the way to behave like this by addressing, yet again, our heart. See, because the heart, that's where it starts. The heart is the wellspring of life, as the Bible says. And what comes out of it is all about what goes in it. And so I believe Jesus wanted to address how our heart should be filled with love and not hate. And so take a look at the following verses because he says this is what we need to do, especially if we're going to respond like this. He says in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, Jesus is clarifying a mistaken verse or mistaken idea of God's command. See, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say hate your enemy, but somehow, some way, the teachings have somehow twisted it and turned it to being, hey, love your neighbor, but you also gotta hate your enemy. Maybe it's just human logic in the way that we think of things, right? I mean, consider sports and how we look at it. If you are a Lakers fan, you cannot be a Celtics fan. That's just wrong. I was going to use the Clippers as an example, but we know no one likes the Clippers. Um, just kidding. I, I, I kind of like them. Uh, but if you're a baseball fan, there are the Yankees. If you're a Yankees fan, you definitely cannot be one of those nasty, bad Red Sox fans or vice versa. Or, or maybe even political realms, we've taken this approach as well. Depending on what side of the part, what party you, uh, you, you identify yourself with, you look at the others as enemies that you can't, no, no way we can get along. Maybe we even do this sometimes with the food or drinks that we have. Some of you guys are like, man, I love Coke. That means I hate Pepsi. Some of you guys, I love Pepsi. I, I hate Coke, even though they taste the same. And, and we, we do this especially when it comes to religion. Right, in our beliefs. If someone doesn't have the same belief as us, they must be our enemy. So we must fight them. We must hate them. No, Jesus says something different. Now, he doesn't say we need to condone them or let them just be, but he says that we don't treat them and look at them as our enemy. We don't hold hate and resentment against them. No, he says something completely different. See, in verse 44, he says, but I say to you, my people, God's children, I say to you, no, love. Love your enemies and pray. Pray for those who persecute you. And so those people, those people that are your enemies because of your choosing or because of their, how they treat you or because of their different religious opinions or political standings, Jesus is saying, no, just because they're different does not mean you hate them and just love the people that look like you. No, instead he's saying, no, love them and pray for them. See, how do I respond to those who hate me? How do you respond to those that hate you? We write this down as your next point. Respond with love and prayer. We need to love and we need to pray for our enemies. See, the truth is people will hate us. Jesus made it very clear that people will hate us even for the things that we believe, but there will be people who hate us for all sorts of different things, legitimate and illegitimate. It could be for the color of our skin. It could be the way that we talk. It could be the country we're from, our ethnicity. It could be all sorts of different things. And Jesus says our reaction to them, our heart's response to them, shouldn't be hate and antagonism. It shouldn't be resentment. 
It shouldn't be shown in actions of mockery. But no, it should be with an attitude of love, acted out in prayer. We learn even in the Bible, it tells us in Romans 12 that we are to act in a way of love toward our enemies. He says, man, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. See, God has called us to actively love those that may hate us, those that may look different than us, not hold the same beliefs as us, that don't treat us the same. He says, love them. A great example of this was when Jesus told this story about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, real quickly, what happened was Jesus shared this, example, shared this example of an Israelite man walking, getting mugged, and being left for dead. And as other Israelites came walking, a priest and a Levite, two religious people, people that knew the law of loving their neighbor, they came, they saw this man, and they left. They did nothing. And then Jesus used a Samaritan to prove a point. Why a Samaritan? Because at that time, Samaritans and Jews, they were at odds with each other. They were considered enemies of one another. They did not like each other. They resented one another. They mistreated each other. And yet Jesus uses this example to say this Israelite man, this Jewish man is laying dead, hurt, helpless. And while two neighbors who were Israelites just like him walk by, he says, here comes his enemy, the Samaritan. And what does the Samaritan do? He goes and he loves him. He cares for them. He bandages them up. He cares for his wounds. And he even takes him to a place where he can rest. And he even pays for this stay that he is having. See, Jesus says, that should be us. And one of the ways I really think that God wants to challenge us today is by showing love to our enemies by offering forgiveness. See, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us don't offer forgiveness unless the other person seeks it, right? We are not gonna forgive. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't say sorry. Will you choose to forgive your enemy even if they never say sorry, even if they never feel bad about it? Because that's what love does. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't allow it to continue on, but it says, I will forgive. It says, I will let it go. I will not hold it over you and let it eat me up inside anymore. See, and I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus is so adamant that one of the ways we show love is by forgiveness because if we don't, then bitterness and resentment start to boil up inside and starts to infest us like cancer and eat us from the inside out. And see, Paul talks about why we are to approach our hearts and make sure they're filled with love and not even have the hint of hate because he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He knows that a little bit of evil can turn itself into a whole lot. And so instead of even having a smidget of it, let, us, let our hearts be too full for any room of hate because it's full of love. And then Jesus goes on and says, hey, pray for your enemies. Pray for them. Now, that doesn't mean pray that they get hurt. Pray that they, um, you know, see things your way. But pray for their benefit. Pray for their good in the sense that God knows what's best. Don't pray for their defeat. Don't pray for their harm. Pray for them. And the most loving way you can do is say, God, I offer them up to you. And one of the reasons I believe God does that is, yes, he answers our prayers and he starts moving in the people's lives, but I think he also wants to work with us when we pray for them. Why is this so important? Well, let me show you why. Jesus goes on to explain the importance of this in verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is heaven. Love your enemies. 
pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because we're supposed to look like dad. That's why we love our enemies. And we pray for those who persecute us. To kind of give us a visual example of this, I think I'm going to put up a picture of Pastor Greg. He's currently away on sabbatical. Can't wait for him to return. But some of you guys might not know, he, he has a couple of children. One son, his name is Evan. And, and I want to ask you guys, can you tell which one of these three living beings is his son, Evan? It's pretty easy, right? The chicken. No, I'm just kidding. It, it's the middle one, right? Not only because he's a real life human being and a child, but I don't know if you guys notice it or not but he looks like a mini Greg, right? He looks a lot like his dad. And I think this is the reality of it. You and I, as believers, we should look like our dad, not the rest of the world. See, loving your enemy is a marker of being your daddy's child, being God's child. See, he, he goes on further and he talks about the importance of this. See, because if we look like our Father in heaven when we love our enemies, it gives a picture to the world of who our God is. But, but when we give false representation of God because we hate our enemies, because we go eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in our reactions, then we sully the name of our dad. See, when we react with anger and retaliation, when we hate our enemies, when we allow hate to infest us and come out of us through snarky comments, through mean gestures, through attitudes of hate and hurt, when we allow ourselves, even somewhere like a basketball court or, or a sporting event, get the better of us to allow us to start yelling and screaming and getting mad at someone, because they wronged us, they fouled us, whatever it might be, because we're losing. When we do that, man, think about it. What does that tell the rest of the world what our dad looks like? People are probably thinking, that's why I don't like God, because look at his children. Look at how they act. Man, is that what God must be like? That's why it's so important how we respond and how we act, because we are supposed to represent our dad. Do we look like him or do we, do we look like everyone else? See, Matthew 5, 46 through 47, Jesus continues on with this thought. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, do you look like your father in heaven? Or do you look like the rest of the world? You look like the rest of the world when you only love those who love you. You're no better. You're no different than even gang members. Gang members love those that are in their gang, but they hate those that are their enemies. This, ex this is an extreme example, but even Hitler, a man that committed unbelievable acts of hate, of murder, of genocide, he loved those that looked like him. And he hated those that didn't. Jesus is saying, are we more looking like that? Or do we look more like our Father in heaven? Because see, our Father in heaven, he loves his enemies. How do I know that? We're living proof of that. We were once his enemies. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Jesus died for us. 
So who do we look more like? The rest of the world or our dad? To love our enemies is to say that we look like our dad. It's not easily done, though. And so Jesus ends with how we're to aim towards this and move in this direction. He says in Matthew 5, 48, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying aim to be like your dad. If you don't get anything else, don't look at just the laws to fulfill. Make your aim and make your mark to be like your Father in heaven. See, that's part of the lessons that I learned, and I just want to kind of unpack them for you one last time. In this passage here, what I see is loving your enemies does a lot of things, but I want to focus on these three. First is this. Loving our enemies distinguishes. It distinguishes your identity from everyone else. It makes you stand out. Why? Because you are different. You don't love like everyone else loves. You love like your dad in heaven. You don't act like everyone else. You turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. You give the shirt off your back. You give so generously. Why? Because you look like your father. You don't react with anger and hate and spitefulness. You don't let your temper get the best of you. Why? Because you look like dad. And speaking of dad, number two, loving your enemy, it directs your aim to be like your dad. Jesus says, let this be your goal. Let this be your measurement of success. Aim to be like dad. And then finally, the lesson that God really compelled and put on my heart was this. When we love our enemies, it develops. It develops an opportunity for enemies to become friends, for enemies to turn into our neighbors. You know, a great example of this was found by the owner of Chick-fil-A. His name is Dan Cathy. And they sell this amazing chicken. It's so good. I'm getting hungry right now, so I'm trying to try to wrap this up real quick. But see, Dan Cathy is a self-professed Christian. He believes in God and the things in the Bible. And so when asked on his stance of marriage, he shared. He believed that it was between a man and a woman. And this was in the midst of that great controversy of same-sex marriage. And so the LGBT community, they were up in arms over his remarks. They saw it as a symbol of hate. And so there were protests that were made all over the nation. Protests and boycotts of Chick-fil-A. Some people even took it to these extents. This was actually here at a local Chick-fil-A in Torrance where somebody painted this. It says it tastes like hate. And so you could only imagine the harm it was doing to the reputation of Chick-fil-A, how much money that they were losing. And, and this was causing people to be divided and starting to fight. People would come to Chick-fil-A's, not for chicken, but to fight one another and argue with each other and yell and scream at one another. And while that was all going on, Dan Cathy decided to take a different approach. See, he didn't fight back. He didn't get nasty. Instead, what he decided to do was reach out. Not in public for everyone else to see, but in private. He reached out to a man named Shane Windemeyer. Shane Windemeyer is one of the leading activists of the LGBT community and a gay man himself. And Shane shares about when he was first approached by Dan, he was really skeptical. He was like, what is this man up to? 
He's like, is this man just trying to swing me over and trying to make me stop these protests? No, he said instead, this is what happened. And I'll share, you, share with you the words of Shane himself. He said, Dan Cathy offered me no apology for his genuine beliefs about marriage, nor did I offer him any apology about mine. But you know what? He never asked me to end the boycotts. Instead, he asked me about who I was. He tried to understand me, ask questions about my family, wanted to get to know what made me tick. And what I learned, he says this, he, we both began to see that we didn't have to agree with our enemy in order to be able to love them. So think about it. Christianity does not give us permission to dishonor or disregard those whom we perceive as our enemies. He went on to say, he says, by getting to know me, Dan Cathy expanded his world without abandoning his. And I did mine as well. In fact, he admitted, he said he was sorry. He spent so much time being angry at Dan and deeply distrustful of a man he didn't know, a man that he just considered an enemy. And then shortly after that, Shane came out in a Huffington Post article saying, I have to share something with everyone. I'm coming out and I'm letting people know that me and Dan, we've become friends. See, both men put their reputations on the line when they chose to sit side by side together at a Chick-fil-A bowl a few years back in hoping to show the world that enemies can become friends. Now, I want you to see and know that, you know what, neither one backed down from their beliefs. But what they did instead was they chose to not let their, not let their differences get in the way of loving, caring, and knowing one another. This is exactly, like I said before, what God did for us. We were his enemies. We did things to harm him, to wrong him. And how did he choose to respond? By loving us. And by loving us, some of us have chosen to accept his grace and his mercy and what has happened? We have gone from once being enemies to now being called friends of Jesus and friends of God. That's what can happen when we love our enemies. And what I want to end with is one last story, a real-life example of somebody who let this play out in their life, who looked to Jesus and looked at God and saw what he had done for her and said, I need to do the same. She experienced great hurt and tragedy, great offense. And everyone could have understood if she chose to respond like the rest of the world. But instead, she chose to look like her dad and look at the way it impacted her life and the world around her. Watch this video. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, 
was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for what a powerful, real-life example of someone turning the other cheek to provide a new opportunity to start afresh and to start new. She was able to offer generous grace and react so differently from the rest of the world even though everybody would have been okay or understood if she didn't. She was able to love her enemy and have him literally turn into her neighbor. I pray that you would hear these words. They wouldn't just be words that are familiar to you to the point where you just let them come in and let them go out, that you don't chew on them, that you don't struggle with them, but instead I pray and I hope there's an enemy out there that you're still holding a grudge with, if there's someone out there who's hurt you and offended you, pray that today God's words will compel you to react with generous grace and with love and prayer. And I know it's so hard to do. It's impossible to do on our own. But because of God's example, if we're his children, you can do it. He has shown us the way 
but he's also empowered us with his Holy Spirit. So let's be people who look like our dad. Let's pray. God, we come before you and I, I lift up each and every person here today that has heard these words and God, I pray that you would compel their hearts, that God, you would convict their spirits and that God, they would choose to respond to hurt and to pain, to a person who harms them, to people that are their enemies. God, not like the rest of the world, not with an eye for an eye, but God, rather, they would choose to respond with generous grace and with love and prayer. Because God, that is exactly what you did for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our model of what it looks like to surrender your rights of dignity, to surrender your right legally, and then to even surrender your life generously to serve us and to save us. Help us to be more like you, Dad. So God, we look to you and we look to Jesus to look more like you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.